You are listening to The Exchange on Siouxland Public Media. I'm Mary Hartnett. This week on the program, we talk with a Northeast Nebraska filmmaker and film professor about his new movie based on his family's story of being targeted by the Ku Klux Klan. We speak with Michael White of Wayne State College about his new film, The Cross. We also talk with the author of a book who tells the story of the Klan's successful infiltration of the Midwest, especially in states like Indiana. Timothy Egan's latest book is called A Fever in the Heartland. And we talk with the new Deputy Executive Director of the ACLU of South Dakota, North Dakota, and Wyoming, Libby Scarron. Scarron is a Sioux City native and a graduate of the University of Iowa College of Law. And this Saturday is the semi-annual Sioux City re-event where you can bring your used electronics and more. This time, the list of recyclables includes tires and more. We'll hear about that. And Unity Point Health St. Luke's has unveiled a new therapeutic green space for kids and their families. We'll find out the ways it will help them recover. We also have another small wonder from Jim Scott. But first, a look at the news. A state committee that has been evaluating the number of boards and commissions in Iowa is sending final recommendations to lawmakers. And in that final report, the Boards and Commissions Review Committee suggests ending or merging more than 110 of the state's 256 boards and commissions. Commission Chair Craig Paulson is the director of the Iowa Department of Management. He says this was the first ever complete review of boards and commissions in the state's history. The governor and the General Assembly are going to receive a copy of these recommendations. And as everyone knows, these recommendations will require legislation. So between now and when session starts, I hope Iowans continue this conversation. However, Tony Bisignano, a Democrat from Des Moines, said at Monday's meeting that the committee should not dismiss boards that may seem obscure or narrowly focused. We get to see our constituents active and they like to call us and say, hey, I went to this meeting today. Tell me a little bit more about this. I don't understand it. Those are the real intangibles to what this all is. The committee did make some changes to its original recommendations. The State of Iowa Youth Advisory Council will remain a standalone board, and so will the Commission of Deaf Services. It's up to state lawmakers to pass legislation to finalize any of those changes. And the Woodbury County Zoning Commission held a second public hearing this week about regulating utility-scale solar energy systems and again heard people both for and against them being put on rural land. Two weeks ago, more than 30 people turned out for the first meeting as county officials consider changing the permitting process that could govern just where utility-scale solar energy systems could be created. The Woodbury County Zoning Coordinator Dan Priestley reports the second meeting had a similar kind of input with some supportive of utility-scale solar energy systems as long as they have guidelines while others were opposed. Those discussions come at a time when there are currently no proposed solar systems for the county. Priestley says the county wants to proactively address zoning rules for the possibility of larger size solar units that a utility company may want to build sometime in the future. You're listening to The Exchange. I'm Mary Hartnett. A Sioux City native has been named Deputy Executive Director for the American Civil Liberties Union of South Dakota, North Dakota. 
and Wyoming. Libby Skarin joined the organization in 2014 as the policy director. Before she joined the ACLU, Skarin was an assistant attorney general for the state of Iowa and also with Iowa Legal Aid. Skarin says the work of the ACLU is becoming more important as South and North Dakotans and the citizens of Wyoming face some difficult civil liberties challenges. Um, I think some of the common threads that we see in this region and across these three states are things like attacks on free speech and the First Amendment, which are coming up largely in the form of book bans and classroom censorship. Um, Of course, right now, there is a huge deprivation of rights to our own bodies and to make the decisions that are best for us, both in terms of abortion rights and access to reproductive care, but also in terms of transgender rights, and in particular, the rights of transgender youth and the rights of them and their parents and their doctors to make medical decisions that are the best and the most appropriate for them. I think we've also seen, you know, in the 10 years that I've been here, we see states consistently using prisons to lock people up and house them rather than investing in policy solutions that can solve underlying problems, things like addiction and sort of, you know, issues that are relevant to public health and that can't be solved simply by by incarcerating folks. Um, You know, I think we've also seen a continued trend of threats to the rights of indigenous people. Um, Just last year, you know, the Supreme Court thankfully did uphold the Indian Child Welfare Act. But that was, you know, the fact that that case even got in front of the Supreme Court when that law has been around for a very long time um, is certainly concerning. And then I think, too, you know, we're heading into 2024 and we know that voting rights will be a huge deal. They always are, um, especially around big uh, national presidential elections. So that's sort of my short list of uh, all the things that we're working on and that I think are, are really critical right now. You know, when we talk about voting rights, are we talking um, about the ability of people to to register, to get to the polls, to have their votes count? Seems like there's a lot of issues in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's really all of the above, right? I think we see attacks on, like you said, registration, um, though I should note North Dakota technically does not have voter registration, which is something very unique about the state. Um, but I think it can also be in terms of things like shortening Uh, early voting times, which are really important to folks, especially people who maybe um, work fairly rigid jobs. They work, you know, nine to five and they have kids and they can't get to the polls that one day on election day. Um, Looking at things like increasing, increasingly putting regulations on voter ID, which we know in effect has um, the result of making accessing voting harder. There's really There are a lot of things that are contained within sort of the umbrella category of voting rights. Does the ACLU see a problem with voter ID in and of itself? I mean, we do think that voter ID laws, there is a a long history of voter ID laws being used to make it more difficult to vote, right? Especially when there are really stringent requirements. Um, Historically, we've also seen those used to disenfranchise indigenous people, Um, That can come in the form of accepting only some tribal IDs or making requirements um, for those tribal IDs to have information that is not normally contained on those IDs, so requiring tribes to create an entirely new um, ID system. Really, when you look at voting rights and you look at voter ID, there is essentially no um, fraud that comes up as a result of lack of voter ID. So I think by focusing on voter ID, 
the true impact is to disenfranchise people when it really solves no meaningful problem. You know, people just simply do not um, commit fraud at the polls. Like it's been looked into so many times and it, you know, there is essentially no cases where that has been found to happen. So voter ID, I think we do see as a barrier to voting that is unnecessary. And there are, of course, uh, you know, it's a spectrum of, of voter ID laws. Some are very stringent and those are more problematic. Uh, there are some that are not as stringent and, and those raise, I say, less concerns, but I think still are concerning. You talked a little bit about um, indigenous peoples and rights. seems like there have been a lot of cases, a lot of instances in the past five years or so. We talk about uh, land rights. We talk about uh, putting pipelines under native lands. Um, you know, all sorts of issues. And and being in North and South Dakota and Wyoming, I would think that you, you hear a lot about that. You, you deal a lot with that. Yeah, yeah. Certainly that has been a, a very big issue um, during my term at the ACLU. And I think that's something that people are very, um, very passionate about. And there are a lot of things that have happened within, you know, uh, government's agreeing to allow pipelines to come through that disregard the rights of indigenous people, um, that disregard the rights to the water and the land that tribes have, and that raise fundamental issues about treaties that were signed, you know, decades, hundreds of years ago that are being ignored by the United States government. So yes, in this region, I would say that that is certainly an issue that does come up repeatedly. How much do do you deal with immigration in those three states? A lot of issues with immigrants coming into the U.S. It can be a very divisive issue, immigrants' rights. Um, How much of an issue is that in the Dakotas and Wyoming? I would say that our immigrants' rights work um, is primarily happening in Wyoming. Um, You know, we've we've got a dedicated attorney working on immigrants' rights um, in the Jackson, Wyoming area. And for whatever reason, it seems that, that we get intakes and we hear more about immigrants rights in Wyoming versus North Dakota and South Dakota. Um, And we really see our role, especially in Wyoming, as doing know your rights trainings, building connections within the immigrants community and ensuring that immigrants understand their rights and know their rights and have access to um, protections, you know, such as like refugee status or, or visas and things like that. It seems like the ACLU uh, now covers a broad swath of, of issues and, and people from all backgrounds. Uh, when I was young, I remember people talking about the ACLU uh, protecting the rights of people to, to speak. It does seem like the ACLU has become a broader organization, or is that kind of my, I don't know if it's my imagination or... Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think um, that certainly matches sort of my education about the ACLU as I was growing up and and going to school. And I think um, now having worked here for 10 years, I think we've always been an organization that looks at the Bill of Rights holistically and takes on a variety of issues. But certainly um, for quite a few years, a lot of the work the ACLU was perhaps most known for was that First Amendment free speech work, um, which is one of the things that really drew me to this organization. You know, I, I went to school at the University of Iowa and I was a journalism political science major. And of course, you can't get a journalism degree without learning about the ACLU and the role that they played. Um, so I don't necessarily think um, that we have significantly changed. I think rather the needs and the civil rights issues. Um, that our communities are facing have changed. And it is very interesting to me at this point, 
you know, if you had told me 10 years ago that we'd be working on book bans, I wouldn't have believed you because to me, you know, that's, that's, those cases have been decided. Those principles are well enshrined that you can't violate the First Amendment in that way. And yet that is something that we're seeing becoming very prominent again. So I think, uh, you know, I foresee a lot of First Amendment work being a part of the ACLU in a prominent way, again, um, in a way it, it maybe hasn't had to be for the last 20 or so years. I am so thankful to work for an organization like the ACLU because I think particularly in our region, um, there are some very serious and substantial civil rights and civil liberties issues that continue to arise. And I think that it's incredibly important for us to fight for these basic freedoms that we as Americans have have relied upon forever. Like I really think that we are starting to see encroachment against rights that, that just can't stand. And so I'm thankful that the ACLU is in our region and I'm thankful that I get to do this work. That was Sioux City native Libby Scarron, who has been named Deputy Executive Director for the American Civil Liberties Union of South Dakota, North Dakota, and Wyoming. Well, efforts to curtail civil liberties are not new to the Midwest, as can be seen in a new film by Wayne State College professor and filmmaker Michael White. White premiered his new movie last night in Wayne. It's called The Cross. It tells the story of how his family was targeted by the Ku Klux Klan when they lived in Lorenz, Iowa. That's where his grandfather ran a successful restaurant. White says the night that the Ku Klux Klan burned a cross on his grandfather's lawn has become a marker in family history, and that really made him want to make this film. You know, some families, there are some things you don't really talk about. And this was something that, and that's part of the reason for the title of the film, you know, the film is called The Cross. And that's because it was kind of a marker in our family, kind of like before the cross, after the cross. So um, my family lived in, in Lorenz, Iowa in the the 19 the 1920s. The the film actually takes place in 22, but in fact the actual cross burning was closer to 1930, but for a lot of logistical reasons we moved the the film to 22. Um but one of the things I think that was really interesting is that the targeting of of Catholics and not just Catholics but I would say also immigrants at the time because they wanted to close the borders. If you look at any of the press from that time, they really didn't like Irish coming in. They really didn't like Italians coming in and of course both groups were Catholic. And my family were French Canadians. So even though, you know, my my grandfather's first language was French and 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 these things, they were kind of grouped together as um, you know, the immigrant Catholic family that ended up there and 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 Grandpa was successful. I mean, he had a, a restaurant that did really well. He was successful in the town. And I think coupling his his business success with being an immigrant and being a Catholic really made the Moros targets. What led up to that cross burning? What was going on uh, with the family at the time? Well, and that's really kind of an interesting thing. I One of the best things to come out of this was learning about my grandmother and what an extraordinary woman she was. It took about a year of research to do this. And we went to the Lorenz Public Library and we did a bunch of things and, and found some things. And my grandmother was this really interesting person. She really wanted to have a Catholic church with a priest in Lorenz. It was something that she really wanted. She was very involved in the, the prayer circle there. And she was a businesswoman. She had her own business making hats and um, high fashion hats and things. And she was a really 
for that period, a really extraordinary woman. She, you know, was she was a very strong business person. She was, you know, a strong person in her community. And I think probably not just the fact that that she was there, the fact that the the family was very proud of who they were and very proud about being Catholic. And I think that was like waving waving a flag almost, you know, to to target them. So were they? Um... Were they treated badly on the street? Did they get threats? Well, we don't know. <laughs> um, one of the things that we have, have found, of course, is that I grew up hearing some of the slurs that you would hear from that period. Mackerel snappers and French Canadians were often called frogs. And those were those are things that, that of course, now, now those are terms you would never even hear anymore. You wouldn't even think of that, those as slurs. But they were common slurs that you would use. Um, but also, I think, too, I, I still run into, and in the research, it was very interesting. There is still, um, especially not so much in the urban areas, but in, in rural places, there still is the, you know, you know, Protestants should not marry Catholics, even now, which is unusual. Um, I also think something interesting in the research is, as, as I did this, I kept having people come to me and say, listen, my immigrant family was also targeted. And I found three or four other families that this had happened to, but no one was talking about it. Um, and I think one of the real realizations was I, I went to Fort Dodge um, in this because my my youngest daughter, who is she's an artist and she's training to be a, a production designer in film, she came with me and we went to see my grandparents' grave. And something I noticed is as you looked around this the, these graves in Fort Dodge that the number of Italians that were there, the number of Irish that were there, and the amount of French that were there. Everyone had congregated together to be, you know, to be Catholics and to be in, in one place. And it was very interesting to walk through. I, I noticed that and I started to walk through and look at the dates and it just kind of resonated with me. Oh my goodness, I understand why they're here. Um, there were times in making the film though that were hard. I mean, it was it was it was difficult because it was like, am I picking at the bones of something very painful that my that would that's maybe better forgotten? Because this was a horrible thing. It financially devastated our family. Grandpa had to pick up and move, um, and you know we we lost a lot in it. Um, and I, I I don't know. I mean. If it wasn't for the fantastic people working on the film with me, that's like, Mike, this is important. I don't know if the film would have got finished. So what happened when they moved? Well, this is a very interesting thing. My my grandfather was a very skilled chef, and he moved to Fort Dodge, and he went to work for a German immigrant named Luther Eilers. And the, the Eilers family had a hotel in Fort Dodge. It, I think it burned down in the late 1980s, maybe the early 90s. Um, and it was a, a very grand hotel. And he liked my grandfather. He uh, Luther Eilers, also a Catholic, but he was a German immigrant. And he hired my grandfather, and he worked there until he retired. My grandfather died in 1957. But I think um, one of the things that so one of the fun things I was able to do is I, I have a friend who's another filmmaker. He's, he's German, and he plays Luther Eilers in the film. So it was very fun to be able to have that come to life um, in the film. There are a lot of moments like that. Like um, the, the set, for example, we, we rebuilt like the interior of Grandpa's restaurant and what it was like to sit in my grandfather's restaurant from 100 years ago was a really surreal, cool feeling. 
Um, and I think most people don't get to experience that. Like, what is it like to go back 100 years to be with your family, some of which you may never have really known? It's sort of um, a, a hyper world extension of looking at the, the records on Ancestry or something, yeah. you know, and you think, oh, wow, that was that person. Yeah, I think one of the, the fun things was we have two really good makeup artists. Um, you know, we have um, uh, Tatum Payne and Stephanie Beckner, who are fantastic makeup artists from here in the Sioux City area, and they are wonderful. And they took pictures of my grandmother and looked at her hair and things like that. And then the woman who played, uh, who plays um, Jessica Johnson, who's this fantastic actress from Omaha, she plays my grandmother in the film. Um, they used photographs to make her hair look like my grandmother's. And that was a very strange thing to have. We, well, the very first night of shooting, we were in this bed and breakfast and she had her makeup and her hair done and she came out, uh, she came in the hall and she started to speak, you know, and it was really weird to see like my grandmother, but as a young woman and to, to think about that and to feel what that's like. Cause I just knew her as kind of this docile little old lady who was just so wonderful and loving and, and to see her as a strong 40 year old woman protecting her family was a really cool thing. I, I, I gained a really different perspective of who my family was. What do you think that, especially young people who don't have much really uh, historical memory of that time in, in our world, what do you think they'll feel like when they see the film? You're trying to sort of, I think part of it too, you're trying to sort of tell them what things were like then and, and how they relate yeah. to now, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think something that's really interesting is there is an extraordinary amount of intolerance. I mean, there is a hatred toward immigrants in the film. And there is, um, there, there is, you know, religious intolerance in the film. And, you know, they are, those are themes that, that, I mean, the world hasn't really changed that much. We see some of that that still happens. And I think seeing what these people go through and seeing how they lose their culture, you know, the film, you know, even though Catholicism runs through the film, to me, the film is not a film about religion. The film is what it's like to have your culture erased, you know, and, and they wanted this American dream so badly. But what do you lose? What do you lose when that happens? What happens when you completely assimilate and erase who you were? And to me, that's what the film's about. I wanted to ask you, you know, about the effects of the writer's strike, which now looks like it has been settled and people will be going back to work. You have a lot of knowledge about the entertainment industry. You make mm -hmm. movies. You know what's going on. What do you think is going to be the upshot, the ending of this uh, writer's strike? If we kind of follow follow suit with what has happened historically, I really think that we're going to have a lot of production that has been pushed off. And what will happen is this happened kind of after COVID is production couldn't keep up, especially in cities like Atlanta. And long hours ended up being a very normal thing. And then we also ended up beyond just the hours. There were, you know, there's going to be probably, it's difficult for them to not <laughs> abuse the rules a little bit in the production side. So simply, I feel like the writers will go back to work, but the production is going to become very, very um, overloaded. The production system is. Um, so it's going to be a while till we have a normal flow of content, I think, in the industry. Um, 
and it has affected also promotions too. I mean, right now you, the with this with the two strikes that are going on, the actors can't even promote their own work. Um, we're seeing with this film the extraordinary amount of interest in in you know distributing this film just because there is so little content right now. And you know, it's wonderful for an independent filmmaker outside the union, but for for the union folks, this is a tough time. Sometimes it does take a something to change, like kind of an earthquake in the industry for people mm-hmm. to get an opportunity. I would agree with that. And I think also something that, that is that you've got companies like, you know, A24 and a few other people that that specialize in independent projects. They fell right in line because they just want to keep working. The real issue tends to be the big conglomerate monoliths in the industry that, that don't want to move. Um, and we may it may be a real golden age for the independent film. Let's hope so. That was Wayne State College professor and filmmaker Michael White talking about his new film called The Cross. It's based on his own family story. His family was targeted by the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s. That film premiered in Wayne on Tuesday night, and it's going to be available at various film festivals across the state. The Cross was nominated for Best Screenplay at the 2023 Iowa Motion Picture Awards. It won the Best Festival Screenplay Award at the Star City Film Festival, and White was named Best Iowa Filmmaker by the Star City Film Festival in 2021, where he received the Lifetime Achievement Award in Film from the Iowa Motion Picture Association in 2023. For more information about the film, you can go to wsc.edu. listening to The Exchange on Siouxland Public Media. I'm Mary Hartnett. We just heard about a new film based in Iowa that tells the story of a French-Canadian Catholic family that was targeted by the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s. The Klan was very active in the Midwest, especially in the 1920s. However, a lot of us have forgotten or never really known about that history. Author Timothy Egan talks about that period in American history. His book is called A Fever in the Heartland, The Ku Klux Klan's Plot to Take Over America and the Woman Who Stopped Them. Egan says sometimes when he talks about the issue of the Klan in the Midwest, people have no idea that the Klan was ever even active in this area. Right. You know, that Harry Truman said 
the only new thing in the world is the history we do not know. And this is the history we do not know. I mean, when I wrote my book on the Dust Bowl, The Worst Hard Time, I was trying to give a version of history that was largely unknown. That is, most people think of the Dust Bowl as Steinbeck and the Grapes of Wrath. But I thought the truer and more interesting story was the two-thirds of the people who didn't go anywhere. This, similarly, is a story of a monster, a con man, uh, a charlatan, a man of gift of the gab, but also was a rapist and a raging alcoholic and a liar and a sociopath who in four short years takes over what perhaps is the quintessential American state of Indiana. And so the book is about how that happened, why good people fell for a bad man and some not so good people who fell for a bad man. And this one woman who ultimately stops him. Well, you say in the book that his philosophy was, you know, he didn't sell them on any kind of, of hate, you know, or hating immigrants or hating blacks. He sold them on Americanism. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. So that's that quote from Stevenson is the key to how he was able to ultimately take over a state. He, yeah, the exact quote was, I did not sell the Klan on haters. I sold it on Americanism. So you got these huge Klan rallies and there'd be barbershop quartets. There'd be... Uh, lemonade stands with the Ku Klux Kitties selling lemonade with their hoods on. There would be the women's brigade, you know, that would serve these giant picnics and everything. So on the surface, it was very Rockwellian. It very much looked like, you know, mainstream America. The peak was the 4th of July on July 4th, 1923, where they had 200,000 people turned out. The largest Klan rally ever ever in history. And it's in little Kokomo, Indiana. And, you know, it's people, they, they wanted to believe that they were good Americans, but at its core, it was still a terror group. I mean, they, they ran people out of town who were black in this little town in Indiana. They burned the homes, firebombed the homes of Catholic clergy because they didn't like Catholics. They shut down Jewish shops in America because they were open on Sunday. And the Klan, they would go into the speakeasies and go after women because they didn't like the social liberation of women during the jazz age. So they, on their surface, they were very much normal Americana, but beneath that was the dark heart of terror and hate. All of this went on and his wife had left him because of his abuse. And then yeah. he, he met up with Madge Oberholzer. Can mm -hmm. you tell us a little bit about Madge? I, I love Madge. And one of my jobs in this book is to try to bring Madge into her rightful place in history. Mm. And you're helping me. So thank you. Because you know what? So many of these people like Madge get written out of the story. And when the story of the Ku Klux Klan of the 20s is written, as I'm trying to write it now, at the peak of its power, we need to remember Madge Overholzer. She was a single woman living at home with her parents, 28 years old, had been a school teacher, had been a literacy coordinator, and was kind of feisty, daring, original, independent. You know, women had just been given the vote and she thought she didn't need a man to tell her what to do. Um, she drove across the country before there were highways. Uh, she, she really was a woman of her age. She cut her hair short in a bob. You know, she went to clubs. She dated several men. She was an independent woman and she thought she could take care of herself. But she needed to beat D.C. Stevenson because her job was on the chopping block. And Stevenson controlled the state. And what happened, I'll tell you this part, but I won't tell you the rest. He committed an awful crime. He raped her and tried to cannibalize her. Mm. And ultimately, she does die. 
But her words in a court of law, which forms the last third of this book, I tried to write like a John Grisham courtroom procedural. Her words ultimately bring down Stevenson and the Ku Klux Klan at the height of its power. So, you know, I say at the very end of the book, at the very least, Madge Oberholzer deserves her plaque or maybe even her statue somewhere. After she died, the, the huge numbers of people that that came and, and mourned her, her death and the big change that her sacrifice made in the world, and not just in Indiana, but in the US and and and, the, and about the, you know, the valorizing of the Klan, it, it really stopped it cold. Yeah, you know why? Because people finally saw the dark heart of the Klan. She exposed them. I mean, they professed to be about virtue and as they said, 100% Americanisms, but they were really about this awful monster. I mean, a really rotten human being. And I saw him as a metaphor for the larger clan that on the surface, charming, but just below the surface, monstrous. So yeah, w without her trial, and it was a sensational trial. It was like the Scopes Monkey trial, which had just happened in the same year of its state. All the papers covered it. In Indiana, it's still considered the trial of the century. So all this evidence about their, their monstrous acts and how they were able to get seemingly normal people to join up. I mean, every county in Indiana, but two, that is 90 of the 92 counties, had a Klan chapter. So they totally infested the state. It wasn't some little you know, group living under a bridge or something like that. And, and, and it's what happened in a court of law the court allows where we ultimately, you know, have our reckonings. And in this case, that that's what happened. I just wanted to ask you briefly about sort of the Klan in the Midwest in general, because not far south of here in Omaha, we had a lot of Klan lynchings and terrible things happened down there. Yeah. People didn't really realize the effect of the Klan in the Midwest, thinking of it as a Southern thing. Right. It, it got characterized primarily as a Southern thing because that's where they started. Uh, but they were gone by 1872. And they rose 50 years later, and, and their stronghold was in the Midwest. Now, here's one interesting thing. Um, just before D.C. Stevenson's trial in 1924, there was a massive parade in Washington, D.C., and I have a picture of it in the book. 50,000 Klansmen and Klanswomen marching down the streets of Washington, D.C., and openly parading their hatred from the White House to the Capitol Dome. And when the reporters did the stories, what did they find? Most of those people were not from the old Confederacy. They were from Michigan, Ohio, Iowa, Nebraska, and certainly Indiana. And that was a surprise to a lot of people. And it's a surprise still, because, you know, in our stereotypical way, we think, well, the South is where all the hatred of others originated and still is strong. But in fact, it had moved north in the 1920s. What do you think the through line is from like the 20s, the post-war years, the Klan years, the fall of the Klan. And then you you wrote earlier about the depression into the 30s. Mm -hmm. uh, such, you know, Booth Tarkenton said something about, and you, you quote him in the book, the, the amazingly swift change of, of right. everything, especially in this country from those yep. post-war years and then into the 30s. It just seems like the whole world just turned upside down. Yeah, exactly. Well, and then we're in an age where there's a lot of tumult right now. COVID really threw us. It really made society coarser. Uh, most of the cities are in worse shape. There's more homeless. Um, we don't talk to each other in a civil way for the most part. There's 
all those things happened, you know, as following COVID. And in the twenties, what happened? And again, it's it's a great period to reach into a hundred years ago. You had all this change. You had all these immigrants coming to our country, but they didn't look like the old Nordic immigrants. They were Jews from Eastern Europe. They were Sicilians, Southern Italians, who tended to be darker skinned, and they were Catholic. People didn't like Catholics. The Klan didn't like Catholics. That is, and and again, I can't stress enough: women who were newly socially liberated, that really freaked out a lot of people. And that made the Klan an open door for folks who wanted to harken back to a seemingly more innocent age. Their slogan was 100% America for 100% Americans. And you don't need much deciphering to figure out what that means. That was Timothy Egan. His latest book is called A Fever in the Heartland, The Ku Klux Klan's Plot to Take Over America and the Woman Who Stopped Them. Egan is perhaps best known for his award-winning book about the Depression in America called The Worst Hard Time. You're listening to The Exchange on Siouxland Public Media. Support for The Exchange comes from Gregory Giles, Investment Advisor Representative with Legacy Financial LLC in Sioux City, serving the financial planning and investment needs of clients since 2004. Information about Legacy Financial and Greg Giles is available at LegacyFinancialLLC.com. Financial planning and advisory services offered through RDA Financial Network. Traveling west, the Corps of Discovery lived in worlds they couldn't have imagined. The most unimaginable worlds, though, left them mute. But not Jim Scopp. He has more to say about it. What on earth? Think Nessie, that hugely mysterious reptile thought to lurk in the depths of Scotland's scariest inland sea, Loch Ness. Think Nessie, even though most authorities call her or him more myth than monster. What I'm saying is, if you need an image of a plesiosaurus, a four-flippered behemoth incapable of moving around out of water, but a talented swimmer, if you need to imagine what a plesiosaur might look like, think Nessie. 
In the early years of the 19th century, an English schoolgirl named Mary Anning became the world's most famous paleontologist by digging up all kinds of wonders from the cliffs along the English Channel. For the record, Ms. Anning grew up dirt poor. She and one brother were, of ten children, the only siblings to survive childhood. She had little or no education, but when she was just five or six years old, her father would take her on hikes to find fossils to retrieve and sell. Mary got hooked. Truth be told, Mary Anning's fossil forays weren't all that unique. Among the English upper class, keeping a few fossils on display in the parlor was highly fashionable, odd as that may seem. So Mary Anning kept digging up age-old treasures to peddle, including, in 1823, what most paleontologists now call the very first plasaur, a giant reptile-like creature that just then had no name. It was huge, as was the story. But why on earth are we going on endlessly about Jurassic Park? Simple. If you take a pontoon up the Missouri, you grab a beer, take your sun lotion. Once you get above Fort Randall Dam, hug the west side of Lake Francis K, somewhere there in Gregory County, South Dakota, and have a look around. An ocean away from the cliffs of Dover and 20 years before Mary Anning found the first one, Meriwether Lewis and George Clark and the Corps of Discoveries unearthed something they had no clue how to identify or what to name. On September 10, 1804, George Whitehouse, the only private to keep a diary, noted the Corps' impossible discovery. We landed and saw lying on the banks on the south side of the river the bones of a monstrous large fish, the backbone of which measured 45 feet long. William Clark could spend a gallon of ink describing a prairie dog. He had stuffed several specimens of the animal world he knew would enthrall friend Jefferson and might just end up in the president's front room. But the most amazing discovery of the entire trip apparently merited little more than what I've just read, a 45-foot backbone embedded in stone. Mary Anning wouldn't discover hers for another 20 years. Well, don't blame them. Core Discovery would have had no way of identifying this monstrous large fish. The word plesiosaurus as yet did not exist, not even in the most prestigious English paleontology journals. The entire crew, slack-jawed, happened quite often, I'm sure, but this time, what on earth is it? They had no clue. The entire bunch had to go speechless right there in Gregory County, South Dakota. If you think of Nessie, somehow the whole story is not so hard to believe. You are the Could tell by the back of their head 
Support for Small Wonders on Siouxland Public Media comes from the Daniels Osborne Law Firm in the Ho-Chunk Center in downtown Sioux City, serving the needs of clients in real estate transactions, business formation and guidance, and personal estate planning. More information is available on Facebook or at danielsosborne.com. You're listening to The Exchange. This Saturday, September 30th, you can bring your used electronics, batteries, tires, and more to the Citizens Convenience Center as part of the City of Sioux City's semi-annual re-event. The re-event will be able to take more than just old tech like computers, tablets, and phones, however. I talked with the chair of the city's Environmental Advisory Board, Grace Perrin, about some of the additional objects you can bring to be recycled this time around. The last one we had this spring, we were only taking um, the old electronics as we normally do, and then we were taking styrofoam as well. Um, This year, since we are holding it at the Citizens Convenience Center, we're going to be able to take a whole lot more. Um, We're taking the old electronics, but we are also taking rimless tires and mattresses. We've also got the um, man who does the household hazardous materials. He's going to be there. So those will be taken with no charge as well um, if you do have chemicals lying around your house. Otherwise, yeah, we've added mattresses and we've added rimless tires. So it, it kind of sounds like a lot of these items that would end up in landfills now won't. Yes. So um, one of the big things I think around here is tires. Um, we see those a lot. Um, they're very hard to get rid of just kind of on your own. So offering this solution to the citizens is a really good idea. Um, clears them out of um, alleyways and ditches and just off the sides of roads. And there's a different location this year, is that right? Yes. So instead of at the Tyson Event Center to um, be able to hold everything that we've got going on, On Saturday, it's going to be held at the Citizens Convenience Center, and that is at 5828th Street, so it's located at what most people know as the dump. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's the kind of thing where you can drive in easily and drop off uh, your printer or your old computer or whatever it is you have. Yes. So there will be a whole lot of volunteers there to help um, guide traffic, but it'll be just kind of a big loop. Um, You'll drive up and through. Um, Mattresses will be first, tires will be second, and then electronics. And then if you do happen to have styrofoam, we will be taking it. Although Lightform will not be there this year, we will just take it on our own and take it to Lightform. Getting rid of those things that become obsolete seems like so quickly. I mean, we all have it laying around our house. It's definitely an issue. Um, I can even see it in my own life. It's hard to get rid of these things because you don't know where to take them. You don't know who will take them. You don't know um, the cost of taking them. And it's kind of something you can just throw in a closet or throw in a basement and just forget about until it starts to pile up and you have more TVs than you can count. Um, We have had different companies um, do it each time. 
So we used to have a company called Seam, and they would take the electronics, and now we're partnering with a company called Retrofit, and they're taking the electronics. We make quite a bit of money from it, but the money goes straight towards paying Seam and paying Retrofit for their time to come out here and take the electronics. So we really don't see any of that money at all. It all just goes towards having them come back and do the re-event again. For more information about recycling in Siouxland and re-event, go to sioux-city.org forward slash re-event. On Tuesday, Unity Point Health St. Luke's unveiled a new space. It's meant to help children and families connected with the Children's Miracle Network. Since 2017, the local Panda Express has spearheaded donation efforts, and the new Panda Care Center of Hope was officially opened this week. Stacy Selk is the director of the Children's Miracle Network. She says the focus of the garden is to provide healing emotionally, physically, mentally, and spiritually. The space is for families and children and also for staff members to come and take a breath and decompress. So what we are doing is we have dedicated the green space just right outside here of our atrium doors um, to help as a, you know, a, a space where not only our kiddos can go to, but also their families and our staff. You know, having that reprieve if you're going through any sort of a treatment or just a traumatizing time, having um, an outdoor green space has proven benefits to have that healing component um, for, for our families. So we are so excited to dedicate this space. Uh, we have completely put in new sod in the whole area. We have some picnic benches out there that our staff has already been utilizing. Um, we have some new garden pots as well. Um, and then we've actually dedicated an area out here for a lot of our therapy patients. We do have a very strong pediatric therapy program here at Unity Point St. Luke's that Children's Miracle Network has done a lot of funding for. So what's nice about this area is, um, you know, especially with kiddos, they, they might have some walking issues and balance issues. So there are some different leveled rock areas, um, gravel areas that they can help with those balance issues. So, you know, our mission is to help provide that healing space for kiddos and their families while they're here. Um, we know that, you know, garden therapy, um, green space, flowers, just nature in general, having that breath of fresh air can help not only with your mental capacity while you're going through something, but in a physical capacity too. So having this completely renovated and updated through the Panda Cares associates and their guests is going to create a much better environment for what we are already providing here in the Sulean community. That was Stacy Selk, the director of the Children's Miracle Network. On Tuesday, Unity Point Health St. Luke's unveiled a new space to help children and families connected with the network. Since 2017, the local Panda Express has spearheaded donation efforts. The Panda Cares Center of Hope officially opened Tuesday afternoon. The $35,000 project includes a garden, which was finished earlier this week.
You're listening to The Exchange. I'm Mary Hartnett. The Sounds of West 7th Festival happens this Saturday with food, art, and many different genres of music. Semhar Geberkeden is Sioux City's community inclusion liaison. She says West 7th Street in Sioux City was historically known as a hub for members of Jewish, Black, and Asian communities. I talked with her about the diversity of the region then and now. I think this event is different from most events because, uh, number one, for this particular one, it's a Black music event, which is really cool because a lot of the talent, actually a majority of the talent, is Sioux City locals. And so that's really cool that we're going to be able to show off the different skills of people here because, you know, sometimes we as minority communities don't always have platforms to be able to perform and show off the kinds of music that we enjoy and that we're talented in. And so it was really fun to be able to create something like this, especially because West 7th historically was an Asian, Jewish, and Black community, and many community members lived there. Um, Although it doesn't always look like that right at the moment, it's cool to be able to go back in time almost and be able to relive the good moments that are there. You know, there was a time when it was a really hopping place to be when it came to music and going out to eat and just having a good time. Yes, especially because there was two jazz clubs, I believe, that were located on there. Um, lots of restaurants, clothing stores, all of that. And so to be able to walk by a building now that's, you know, open and be like, huh, what was there? It's almost like reimagining what it was like. You know, it seems like in the 70s, I remember uh, when I was a little kid, uh, the area went through a very hard time and uh, buildings with no one in them, nothing much going on. People would say, I don't want to go down there. It's dangerous. Uh, But it seems to have come out of that now. No, I agree. And I think, you know, um, I always give my props to Jill Wanderscheid Mascarello over in Neighborhood Services because she had a hand in really revitalizing that space and making it really beautiful, especially with this new addition of murals that are being there and public art. I think it's really made it like the extended downtown that it should be. And so I'm really excited to see how West 7th continues to grow because there's so many great grocery stores and food places and shopping places there. And now, obviously, we have the first ever food truck lot um, in the state of Iowa, Yummy Blocks. And so to be able to kind of do this inaugural event in this place that won a diversity award for tourism is really awesome. And it's really kind of a full circle moment. I am just really excited. Um, Joanne Fox and Jim Jung really were the spearheads of this idea. Um, but they were very intentional in making sure that African-American community members are involved in the planning. Um, we're excited to see how it grows next year, and we'd like to be able to create it so that the Jewish community and Asian-American community is also involved in the performance piece. And so we're very excited to see how this grows. It's been very fun to see the different West 7th businesses come out and help um, financially and also word of mouth. That's been really cool. And we're just excited to see what happens and how this turns out, because it's really going to be a fun time. That was Semhar Gabberkeaton, Sioux City's Community Inclusion Liaison, talking about the sounds of West 7th Festival. And it happens Saturday from 10 to 3 down on West 7th Street. There'll be food, art, many genres of music, and more. The event runs Saturday from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. 
That's it for this edition of The Exchange. Thanks a lot to Steve Smith. And we hope you have a chance to get out to the sounds of the West 7th Festival Saturday from 10 to 3. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week.